if an individual is not abiding in Christ, the vine abiding in the branch, there's just absolutely no way that there is going to be life. We made it clear that at that point, the person is either dying or they're already dead. It's the same way we can go to any fruit tree and pull a branch off. At that very moment, it's either dying, it's still going to have life, maybe for a few days. It's going to have some greenness to it, but within the matter of time, the leaves are going to start to crumble and it's going to die. Or the branch is either dead already and it's going to be pulled off. And we saw that in verse uh, 6 of John chapter 15, Jesus, of course, said, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. And we pointed out that he made it clear to say they're burned. I mean, it's obvious if somebody's thrown in the fire, they're going to be burned. But he made it clear to say they are burned. And I mean, what does that look like, right? For a person who said, I'm going to follow Christ, or they made a decision. It's these people who started out strong. And they just want to talk to everybody about God. Like the song that we sang, they want to shout it on the mountaintops. And they want to de declare it to the masses. But over time... Uh, this time may be a year, it may be a few months, it may be 10 years, but that zeal begins to just wither away. It stops. There's no more joy. Maybe at the beginning, yes, they would jump and shout and clap and during praise and worship, and, and they just had an excitement within. They had a joy, but after a while, that joy just left. It's not there anymore. That's the one that starts to wither away. It's the one who uh, just absolutely loved to study Scripture and, and, and read Scripture, not just because they wanted to know it and to prove to other individuals, this is how much I know, but this is who I know. And it's God Himself. To, to understand it in, in, a, in a better way, right? Not so much so that I can prove to other people, but so that I can know how to live my life in this, in this manner. But that zeal, it's gone away. It's no longer. I don't care really to go to, you know, to, to Bible studies or even to church. And this isn't just the, the, you know, the person who misses here or there. This is just the constant one. I mean, it's just very obvious. They started out looking great, and now they just look terrible. And I think that every single one of us in here knows someone like that. And now there's a point where we can be reconnected to this vine where life will begin to be generated again when the bible talks about the gentiles it says that we were grafted in so we were dead in our trespasses paul says but then we were grafted in because he rooted out the or he tore out the branches of israel that didn't want to receive him we read that in Romans last week. So he did away with them and he grafted in. And any of you who know some agriculture, if you've ever seen when they graft branches, it's actually, it's, it's something pretty, well, it's miraculous. And it's something pretty awesome to see because they get a branch from a certain fruit tree and they'll graft it into another tree. Now, of course, they cut it in certain ways. They bind it, they tie it. Well, if that takes, after a while, you remove all that binding and whatnot, and that branch has now become one with that tree, and it'll begin to bear the fruit that it's supposed to bear. And it's actually something that's, that's pretty uh, uh, brilliant. It's wonderful. 
Now, that's what we want to do. That's what God did to us. And Paul said, look, you Gentiles now, don't be haughty against Israel, because if he didn't spare the natural branches, what makes you think that he would spare you? So those warnings that talk to them, they also apply to us as well. Lest we become haughty, puffed up, prideful, thinking, well, I'm in the door, I'm home safe already. And I mean, somebody in baseball is never going to just uh, walk their way home and saying, I'm already there. They're actually going to run. They're going to keep their eyes on that home plate and they're going to make it their goal to, to get there. They're not going to stop too short because anything can happen. And there's been a lot of mishaps that do happen. And so it's the same thing with us. We press forward, as Paul said, toward the upward calling and the prize in Christ Jesus. We press forward toward that mark of Jesus Christ. So as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So what kind of love is this? That's the first question to ask because today there is a, just a love has been brought in to the biblical understanding, and it's just so broad, and love just entails about a whole lot. Love means it's okay, just come on in the way that you are, even if it's against what we believe in, because we don't want to offend you. And this may be the day that God is trying to call you, or, you know, I don't want to be ugly with so-and-so, or about this or that, because I don't want to. Now, mind you, we don't want to be ugly in certain situations, but that doesn't mean that we can't stand our ground for what we do believe in. I mean, as Christians, we have to be bold and, and stand our ground for what we believe in. And But if we want to understand love, the best thing to do is to always look at Jesus Christ. Now, any time in Scripture where there's something we don't understand, we can't fully grasp it, if you try just grabbing Jesus Christ and putting Him in the center of it, usually things will start to fall into place. Because you look at Him through Him as being the scope. And so what kind of love is it? Again, it's not the kind of love that the world would say. Well, we're not going to say nothing because, well, we, we have to love Him. And that's Again, as I said last week, that's one of the reasons why the ecclesia is in the dilemma that it's in right now. It's not in good shape. I think we all know that, but for the person who doesn't know it, you know, it may burst their bubble, but the ecclesia is not doing in good shape. It's not in good shape. And we should be grieved and, and we should say, okay, I want to be the first one because I can only do what I can do for myself, right? What can I do to be the first one to bring about change? And we work individually. It's the same thing with revival. Where does revival start? We can all cry out for revival. Let it start with me, God. And revival means bringing something to life that has died. So in order for revival to come, something has to die. And that would be our outer man, us, our, our own desires. Let me die to that so that God can be resurrected in my life. But we look at the cross and it's a sacrificial love. I mean, I've always asked people, at any point, did that feel right to Jesus 
when he was going to the cross. Every time he was uh, kicked on and, and spat upon and cursed and, and ridiculed, did it feel right to him? We're talking about emotions. No, it didn't feel right. I would almost assume that he maybe even felt anger within himself, but he refrained it. He kept it inside, but it didn't feel right. It was sacrificial. He made this determination. Okay, I'm going. He was chosen by God. I'm going. I'm going to fulfill what I've been called to do, and I'm not going to stop. Regardless, I'm going to continue in there. I'm going to abide in God, what he called me to do. It's a sacrificial love because he did it putting himself aside in order, order for other people. That's what, that's what love is, sacrificial. When we love other people, I'm going to put myself aside, my own interests, my own well-being, and I'm going to do it for you. Moms, we know that because you do it for your children. Husbands, you know that because you do it for your family. I'm going to put my life down, whatever pleases you know uh, me for the sake of of the family now in today's day and age again it doesn't happen a lot but you know i always remember my father when i was a young boy and and i remember how much he loved tacos and his plate still had some and i was done and i wanted some more and i never i'll never forget him he said here's he used to call me boy here boy you can have mine and i didn't understand it at the time but now that I think about it, he set aside his preference to give it to me because that's how much he wanted to please me. That's love. And sometimes that love is going to be confrontational. Okay? This love, again, standing our ground, it doesn't necessarily... Now, does somebody need comfort? Yes, we're going to love them. Yeah, I you, you made a mess. This is your fault. You're a sinner. But guess what? I'm still going to love you because we're called to love. But I'm not going to enable you so that you can go back and do this again. So he's saying, as the Father loved me in that same way I love you. We've heard this love, agapeo. And we hear it called the unconditional love of God. It means to be well pleased or to be content with. I'm just, I'm pleased with it. So, I mean, would we be well pleased with a 1980 Chevy Chevette? A lot of us might not be. <laughs> right? Nah, I don't want a Chevette. I'm not well pleased with this car. But how about a 2021 uh, Mercedes Benz? Oh, I'm well pleased with it. Right? Okay, rewind it back to a 1965 Mercedes-Benz. Some people will because that's a classic antique car. But it depends on how much you value something. Now, God the Father valued God the Son. God the Son values us. He sees worth in us as we see worth in Him. So because of that, we're well-pleased regardless of the circumstances. But this agapeo, it comes from the Greek word uh, agon, which it means much or excess. This is where we get our word for agony. 
Agony means it's too much. I, I can't handle this, right? Agony, we know it is pain, but it's, it's an exceedingly great pain or burden that I have inside. That's where agony comes from. The Greek word, they come from here. So this would be an excessive pleasing, an excessive excitement. And yeah, that sounds about right. I'm exceedingly joyful with God. I am exceedingly desirous to want to follow Him and to want to be in communion with Him. So, how exactly did the Father love Jesus? Because it said, as the Father loved me, I am also going to love you. Mark chapter 1, verse 11. This is when Jesus began his ministry. John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness. And then Jesus came and said, I need you to baptize me. And John said, no, I'm not going to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, it needs to be this way. You need to baptize me. And after John the Baptist baptized him, Mark 1.11 says, then a voice came from heaven. And it says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now this beloved in the Gospels is usually referred to God or when there's a parable, and it also mentions God, but it's the Greek word, but it's agapetos. And it means highly esteemed, it means worthy, it means dear. So you are my beloved son, whom I am well pleased with. It means um, to do willingly according to one's good pleasure. I'm pleased with him, because he knows exactly what he called him to do, and that he is going to fulfill it. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Another rendition of this, uh, the prophet says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect or chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. So we see that he's a beloved son. He is well pleased with him. In Isaiah 42, we see that he's called a servant, but this word in the Greek also is used as a child. So a son or a servant in whom I uphold. In other words, I'm holding him up. I'm keeping him fixed and established. It says, my elect, my chosen one. That's what elect means. I chose him. So he chose Jesus. And it says, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now, a lot of times in the reading of this, for a true Jew, it kind of ruffled their feathers because to them, salvation only belonged to the Jews, which it did. And Jesus made it clear. But they had no knowledge of the future that Jesus was going to open up salvation to the Gentiles. So it would really rub them the wrong way. For us that read it, we see the prophecy in it that we are also going to have this opportunity to come forth. So the Father, Father God, He loved Jesus by what? By first choosing Him. He could have chose any other way. God could have just said, I'm going to snap my finger and everything's just going to level out and become plain. 
Or God could have said, I'm going to send someone else to suffer. Not my son, my one and only begotten son, but I'm going to send someone else. Or I'm going to do a different route. And we know that Jesus even cried out and said, if there is any other way, Father, let it come to pass. But nevertheless, let your will be done. But he loved him by choosing him. Secondly, he loved him by placing all things into his hand. In John chapter 3, we saw that Jesus speaking, he said, My Father, he's given all things into my hand. So he gave him control. Not only did he choose him, but in that, in that choosing of him, he trusted him, entrusted him with these things that he put into his hand. So in other words, he knew he's not just going to do whatever he desires. He's going to do what is pleasing to me. Thirdly, he loved him by continuing with him. He didn't ever leave him or forsake him. We see Jesus time after time as he walked throughout the time with the disciples. Early in the morning, sometimes from the nighttime, he would, he would endure all night long in prayer, communing with the Father. God never left him. Every time he spoke, the Father would answer back. About the only time he did not do this was when he cried out from the cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was nothing heard in return. But at this point, it was simply because this had to be fulfilled. And fourthly, God the Father loved Jesus by comforting him. During all of his persecutions, during all of the false accusations of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, and again through his uh, road to the Via Dolorosa, standing before Pontius Pilate at the point when he said, I'm weary, to the, even to the point of death, he was sweating uh, or uh, dripping um, drops of sweat and blood. And God was there to comfort him during this whole time. So he says, I love you the way that the Father has loved me. So for us as his disciples, God loves us first by choosing us, by calling us. Now, I know that there is a belief, a certain belief that people say, okay, uh, God strictly chooses you. You have nothing to do in this choosing. You can't resist it if you wanted to. And so this is just the way that it is. And it kind of goes off on a rabbit trail. But I would say that God died on that cross to offer the opportunity to every individual that they could come to repentance in Christ. Now they can choose to say, no, I, I want to deny this God. If that's the case, then why does God command all men to repent everywhere? Because if it was just election, as I just choose you simply like this, then basically, why are you commanding people to repent then? Because you can command them to repent. Now, it is true that God does the initiating the same way that it's the man who asked the woman. And that's the picture, right? Jesus Christ and the bride, the church. Does the woman say, hey, get on my knee and will you marry me? Not normally. Maybe in today's day and age, the way everything's been turned around. But normally, the way is, the man gets on his knees and says, hey, will you marry me? Now, it's up to the woman. The woman can, she doesn't have to say yes. She can say no, or uh, I need some more time. I don't, I, don't, I don't know. But normally, a woman will say yes. It's the same way God calls out to us, and he, he pulls on our heartstrings and says, come, come, come. And we say, yes, Father. Now we follow him. Now sometimes this is where my 
a disagreement with the strong pursuit of a sinner's prayer or the strong pursuit of trying to lead someone to Christ because sometimes it's not God that's pulling that person in, but it's the own convictions of that certain minister that's trying to pull them in. And those are the people that endure for a while and, and then they begin to die. Their zeal starts off really good. Oh, they're men and they come to church and, and yes, and, and they're, they're giving or the, or the wife. But after a while, it's just it's, it's too much of a burden. There's no pleasure. There's no joy. Now nah, I'm not going to go to church. You go. I'm staying home. And so he calls us. That's how he loves us. He calls us. He pulls on our heartstrings. And then what he does when we do come to Christ, he places everything in our hands. I mean, he gives us freedom. He gives us liberty. He gives us, of course, responsibility. He gives all things into our hand and he trusts us with it that we're going to do the right thing with that and not the wrong thing. Does he give us blessings and do they abound? Absolutely so. But the thing is, are we going to make more of the blessing or are we going to make more of the blessor? And then he continues with us. He doesn't stop there and say, okay, well, it was, it was nice meeting you, Adam. You know, uh, I'll see you when, when you get to heaven. No, he continues how? By his Holy Spirit. He said, I'm not going to leave you orphans, none of us, but I am going to continue with, with. He continues with us. And he, in the same way, he comforts us in our time of affliction, in our time of trial. That's the way that He loves us. He comes beside us and He, he makes our soul be still at times because sometimes our soul is just so distressed and it's pulled and it's rot and God by His Holy Spirit comes and says, be still. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now you have to notice the stressing of the conditional statement, if, if, if you keep my commandments. Not when you keep my commandments, not anything else, but if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments. Now, keeping of the commandments, to keep them, it means to guard or to carefully tend to His commandments, not necessarily the Ten Commandments alone, but everything that's come forth from the mouth of God, you and I would know that as Scripture alone, all of it from the beginning to the end. If we attend carefully to it, remember, that's where we get that Spanish word for homework. It means to keep one in the state in which he is in, he or her. And it makes sense because that's exactly what happens when we do our homework, right? When we do our homework, it keeps us in that uh, state of being smart or knowledgeable. It preserves us. It keeps us there. Because if you don't, then what happens? You start to fall behind. I mean, doctors or radiologists, they continue in their profession, because if they don't, then as that profession begins to evolve and new things come out, if they haven't studied or continued, then guess what? They fell behind. And so this homework, that's the keeping of God's commandments. Now, we read God's commandments, God's word sometimes, and then sometimes it just like 
pricks us to the heart like a thorn. I've read this before, but it just never carried this kind of weight upon my soul. And that's God, through us attending it, He begins to show us blemishes or things inside that uh, their intention is to preserve us, to keep us. And what it does is it demonstrates a communion, a relationship. That's what it's all about. You've heard the phrase that, that Christianity is not about a religion, but it's about a relationship. Being communal. Again, we can go back to the marriage and see the importance of it because in that picture, if the relationship is not good, if there's not communion, if there's not communication, then there's not going to be a good marriage. And that in turn leads to an abiding, to a remaining. I'm continuing. That's how you have marriages that are 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. The lifespan of a marriage in today's day and age at best, maybe five years. It's not very good. And I think, this is me personally, that we can even look at marriages today and almost receive a prophetic vision of what's happening in the spiritual state of people. The people are coming to Christ and they're only abiding for those one, two, three, four, maybe five years. And they tend to fall away because there is nothing that is really drawing them no more. It's not the Spirit of God. Now, the Lord's example of keeping the Father's commandments, that's our prescription to keep His. He said, I observed them, I kept them, I attended to them carefully. Now, we turn around and do the same thing as He is uh, the ultimate example. And He said, this is my commandment, that you love one another. That you reduplicate it. This is where I think we all, myself included, we kind of get in trouble. We fall short. Love one another now. It's not loving every individual. He's talking about the disciples. Loving one another as brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ. And he goes on to say that He, he compares that to a friendship. He compares it to a friendship. So you have to ask is how, how do true friends really communicate? What is a friendship about? A friendship, a true friendship is about, it's about love. It's about honor. It's about respect. It's about trust. It's about so many things. That's what a true friendship is supposed to be about. It's kind of hard to find a true friendship nowadays. Now he is talking to them. But therefore, companionship. That's what friends are for. Again, go back to today's day and age. You can see two friends go and eat somewhere. Two guys, two girls, what have you. They're friends. They're not going to talk because they're just on the phone like this. But really, the companionship of a friend is like, Hey, you know, you want to go out and have lunch and you talk about things and you engage and you commune and it's about this coming together in this friendship. Verse 13 says, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Without friends, how would we communicate the love of God? It would be difficult. 
We would all just be loners. And there is a place in today's church where a lot of people in Christ, they've been hurt before by a certain church or a certain person. And because of it, they become what, I guess you could just call them lone Christians. They, they don't want to open up their hearts. They don't want to broaden them to people to get to know them. And they kind of just keep to themselves. And it's not really a healthy thing because basically what you're doing is you're just keeping yourself uh, isolated in a place. And we know that isolation is not good. But what we want to do is open up our hearts to the people in church. Not just because we like them, but because God says to. To open up our hearts to them, to get to know them, to get to understand them. And either they minister to us, we minister to them, and we come closer in that area. He says, greater love has no man. I mean, greater, this is talking about according to size, according to age, according to time frame, according to all things. Greater love has no man, no person, not me, not you, than to lay down their lives for one another. Now, of course, this is indicative first of him. That's what he did. But we read that it says greater love has no man than to lay down their life. This is uh, verse 13. But if you're reading it in the Greek, it says greater love has no man than to lay down his psyche. That's the word that it uses. It means to set aside or to put away, to no longer carry. Your psyche. Your psyche is your heart. Your psyche is your mind. Your psyche is the soul. The heart, the mind, the will, the emotions. Not really your outer life, but your inside, the soul, the thing that kind of carries either to the spirit or to the carnal man. It says, set it aside. Again, that's what Jesus did. I don't, this isn't going to feel good. I'm going to be humiliated. I don't know if any of us have ever really been humiliated in front of a crowd. I know I don't like it. I think I start turning all kinds of colors, probably as red as that apple right there. And then I start getting embarrassed and I'm kind of I'm looking for the next exit because I'm trying to be out of there. Nobody likes it. And the first thing you say is I'm never going back over there again. Now, he was really humiliated. But he set all of that aside for what was set before him. Everything you feel, you, you set it aside, uh, you put it away, also means to no longer carry, okay, to no longer carry what? Offenses. To no longer carry the wrongdoings that maybe a certain brother or sister has committed against us, and it does hurt sometimes. I've been there, I've been offended by my own pastors before, where you start to feel bitterness when you start to feel bitterness, guess what? You better start praying. You better start taking it serious and get on your knees unless that bitterness become one of those outer vines that comes and just chokes out the life that is within us. If you've never experienced it, then be thankful to God. But if you have, you know the importance because you start to get angry. You start to just hold this within you. Well, to lay down your life, means to no longer carry this burden or this offense. Hey, brother, I forgive you. Sis, 
It's all right, I forgive you. Now, let me make clear, it doesn't mean that you have to sit down and eat with them. It doesn't mean that you have to invite them to your home. It doesn't mean that you have to do all these things. But what it does mean is that in your heart, when you hear that name of that individual, there's no longer a stirring inside. But now you just smile and say, oh, yeah, yeah, God bless them. I mean, we do have to be wise and to know a proper distance of what to keep, but we have to release that offense because it's no longer, it's not even hurting them. They're not losing sleep over it, but we lose sleep over it. And it's like, uh, it's like poison. And I've often heard before that it's like the individual, we drink poison and we wish the other person would die. And it does seem like it is a matter of fact that exact place right there that's the spot where i was at in my life where god first broke through oh because i had burdens i had hatred in my heart towards and I, it was three specific individuals that i could remember and i heard their names boy every hair would stand up on my body because i got angry and when god came into my life he humbled me guess what you're gonna go make it right and apologize yeah but i didn't do nothing wrong that's all right. And it took everything within me. As a matter of fact, without God, it wouldn't have been possible. It would not have been possible. Was it humiliating to me? Absolutely it was, but I set it aside. But guess what? After the third one that I went and shook their hand and said, look, I've, I've given my life to the Lord, so I laid down everything. I'm putting everything aside. I walked away as light as a feather. There was no more offense there. And when there's no room for offense, then there's more room for the love of God because there's going to be room for one or the other. Now, this is a choice that we all have, a choice. See, God doesn't make us do anything. It's a choice. Do we choose to be submissive and obedient or do we just choose to hold on to that grudge? Again, a friendship means that we also have the opportunity for what? To forgive. The same way Christ forgave us. And as we were sharing yesterday, that's what I was talking about is, see, if any of us had our spouse and we knew that 10, 15 years down the road, yeah, they're going to cheat on me, then we'd probably say, well, forget it. I'm not going to marry them. Or let's say that they came today and said, I'm sorry, I need to confess something. I did something I shouldn't have done last night. And our first reaction is get out of my face, get out of my sight. But yet God comes with open arms and he says, son, daughter, I, I forgive you. And he restores us. And so you start to see the lack of who we are in Christ and we start to see the desperate need. And so we run back to him and say, God, I need you because I don't want to be like that. I want to be like you. I want to demonstrate those qualities that you show. This is being well-pleased. If Jesus is well-pleased with his beloved, we're to be well-pleased with one another as brethren and i'll admit it's difficult it's not it's not easy it's not easy but it's something that we are called to do and when we choose to not do it with that choice then we must know at that point we are clearly choosing to be rebellious and disobedient that's just the bottom line so of course that brings us to the issue of friends Again, greater love has no one than to lay down his life for his friends. You are, you are my friends if, again, if, if you do whatever I command you. 
No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all the things I heard from my father, those things I've shown you. What kind of love is this when it comes to these friends again? This trust, this honor, this peace. Friends confide in one another, and sometimes we don't uphold that confidence, and they tell us something, and we go and we share it with somebody else, knowing that we shouldn't have done it. But there's trust, as I know I can talk to this individual, regardless of how bad it is. It's something that I'm so ashamed of. Maybe uh, some, uh, one of my children, they're doing something they shouldn't be, but I'm going to confide in my brother and my sister because I know that they're not going to discriminate. They're not going to go and gossip behind my back, but I know what they're going to do is they're, instead of talking to someone else, they're going to talk to God on my behalf for that help. That's the opportunity of a friend. There is respect. There is peace between a friendship. There is no hostility. See, that's the difference. If, if you're hostile against anyone, guess what? That's an enemy. That's actually what the Bible says we are before we come to Christ. Oh, we may not naturally be hostile. We, might, we may not talk ugly about God. But in our hearts and in our minds, we think hostile about the things of God. But when the peace of God comes, then there is no more hostility. There's no more wrath of God there. Uh, all it is is the love of Christ. And so there's that reconciliation. And he says, I'm not going to call you from hereafter servant anymore. The Greek word doulos, bondservant. Remember, it's that slave by choice. I love my master. I choose to be his slave. I'm not going to address you as that anymore, but I'm going to call you my friend. Because a, 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 a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. A, a servant just does what the master says. Hey, go do this. The servant's going to do it. But the, the friend is polite. The friend tells them. The friend lets them know. The friend has communion. The servant never sits at the table with the master to eat. You go sit over there. But the friend says, come sit with us right here. And that's what the Bible says, is that, is that God gives us a place to dine at his table. And at that, before the presence of our enemies... This demonstrates a trans transparency in triumphs and weaknesses and trials, failures and victories. Again, this is where we stop short because it's not a problem to tell God about our weaknesses, our failures, our victories, all of that. But it is when it comes to sharing. Now, again, yes, we want to use wisdom. We're not just going to go shout it to every single member, but because we know that in the church there is weed and there is tares, but we have something called discernment to say, look, I can trust this brother. I'm going to open up my heart because we have that. God placed us here for a reason. Remember when he created man, what did he say? It's not good that man should be alone. And then when he gave him a woman, he said, be fruitful and multiply. God, if that was the case, then God wouldn't have created all of this. But he created us to be communal because it's a picture of him in the holy trinity of God. So we're open in all these weaknesses and trials and, and failures and victories. It also demonstrates obedience. You're my friends if you do whatever I command. Now we're obedient to one another when, well, a friend shouldn't have to tell another friend 
hey, I'm going to share something with you, but don't tell nobody, please. If you have to tell somebody, don't tell nobody, guess what? Just don't tell them, period. Because you should already know that that person knows, I'm not going to share this with anyone. And if it's a true concern with an authentic brother or sister, hey, can I have permission to share this because we just, so that they can pray? I'd rather you not, okay, no problem. But you're not going to do it without permission. As a lot of us used to say when we were out in the streets and things would start to happen or something was going to happen, hey, watch my back. No, if I have to tell someone, watch my back, then you're not part of who I'm going to be around. Because the people that you hung around with, they naturally knew when something happened, hey, we know what to do exactly. And it's the same thing in this friendship. Now, for us, it's more loyal even than the streets because we know that the streets, there's a lot of betrayal. There, there's a lot of backbiting. There's a lot of betrayal. If you didn't know, then you should know now. Don't, don't be curious. You don't even know, need to go out there to find out because you're only going to be disappointed. And it's sad to say there's a lot of betrayal in the church because we don't grasp this concept of God's love. We don't grasp the concept of, of the true friendship. And yes, there's a lot of areas we're going to agree to disagree on on certain things. Now, if they're non-salvific, then, then hey, it's okay. We can be brethren. There's no big deal. And we shouldn't gossip behind nobody's back. We shouldn't slander. We shouldn't try to bring them back. We should actually try to make them look a little bit better than what they really are. That's laying down our life. And we can tell when some people want us to talk bad about somebody. I'm not going to engage in it. I'm not going to do it. Now, this is where we start to see, yeah, I've, 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 I've engaged in some of it. God, I, I need you. That would be myself included. Now, we're talking about friends, not acquaintances. There's a big difference. The majority that we have is acquaintances. An acquaintance is way different. But we transfer that expectancy to brotherhood. The expectancy that God, uh, Jesus and God expected, we expect it uh, to one another. If I expect you to, to be dear to me, then guess what? I'm going to be dear to you. One another, that's reciprocal. It's that demonstrate. Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. It's the second time he says it. He said it in verse 25 of 14. He said, these things I've spoken to you while being present with you. What things? The things that I'm fixing to go, but you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Again, these things I've spoken to you so that your joy may be full. This joy speaks of a delight, a pleasure, a calmness, even an excitement. What is the joy of the Lord? You would have to ask. My joy, he says, so my joy will be in you. What is the joy of the Lord? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy of the Lord is salvation. 
That's the joy of the Lord. Everything that he saw before him, before the cross, it was the joy of the numerous amount of lives that are going to come to faith in Christ and have eternal sonship with him. Sons and daughters. At the end of the day, that's the foundation of all that we have. It's our joy in his salvation. It's our joy in that. Think of it like this. Think about that person that's your significant other or maybe even your first child when they were first born. Can you go back and think about the joy that you had inside? The joy in a relationship, you start to feel this little thing called uh, love or a strong affection and you sit in class and you think about them and you just smile because it's just a joy thinking about them. And if you ever go to that point, think of something that may have come your way that was kind of not so good. But then when you resort back to thinking about this goodness with this individual, this other thing doesn't pale in comparison. It doesn't matter anyways because I have a better thing over here. Can anyone relate to that? Or is it just me? That's the same thing with our salvation in Christ. Our salvation is the foundation. That's our ultimate joy. That's it right there. Again, you hear a lot of talk about bad reports. Well, you've got, uh, you've got an illness that is, uh, there, there's no coming back from it. Or the divorces. Or the sons or daughters going haywire. Yes, it bothers us. Yes, it hurts us. But then you resort back to putting on the mind of Christ. And look, I have an eternal home. Nobody can take that away. That's the joy of the Lord. So now I'm, I'm happy. And he said, I'm telling you so that my joy will remain in you so that it'll stay. It will endure so that we don't forget because sometimes that's what Satan is good at. Okay, he brings this mishap and he brings that mishap. And now we're just heavy down. Paul said the, the every weight and sin that so easily ensnares us and it pulls us down and it drags us. And sometimes now we're just walking around. Yeah. Praise God. I love the Lord. But that's not what he's saying. That's not what it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be excited. Why? Because it doesn't matter about all of this. This is just temporary. Paul said the things that we can see, they're temporary. The things that are not see, those are eternal. That is salvation. So that's the joy of the Lord. He said, and so that then after that, your joy can be full. It's complete. It is mature. Yes, I really want this job or I really want this raise or I'm really looking forward to a stimulus check or I'm, I want this, but if it doesn't happen, it's okay. My joy is complete. It's full. It doesn't matter anymore. That's where we have to be founded. That has to be our foundation, like concrete, solid. Yes, it might have a crack once in a while. Yes, it might get a, 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 a little Something is going to take a chip off of it, but it has to be solid. And we're only going to be as solid as that foundation is. And that foundation is salvation in Jesus Christ. That's when we're secure. That's when we can stand. So the question would be, what exactly is our joy at this very moment in life? Ponder, ponder that in your head. Is it the fact of my salvation in Jesus or is there something else that brings me more of a joy it's good to think about and of course he returns back to the issue of fruit in verse 16 
He, of course, says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain. Now, God chose the Lord Jesus and Christ chose us. We saw at the beginning in Matthew, he said, this is the, the, in Isaiah, my beloved, whom I have chosen. So as God chose him, he turns around and he chooses us. He calls us. Now we know that a tree does not choose when and where to be planted or even by whom, right? You ever see an apple tree when you're at John's garden? Does the apple tree say, hey, pick, pick me and go plant me over there at the backyard in the corner? No. The tree don't do that, but it's the individual who says, I like that tree, I'm going to purchase it, and I'm going to plant it right here. That choice belongs to the planter, or what the Bible would say, the husbandman, that is God. And fruit bearing doesn't depend on the branch, but it depends on being connected to the tree. That's what fruit bearing depends on. And again, even still after that, it goes back to the husbandman because the husbandman puts the fertilizer, he uh, puts insecticide so these insects don't tear it down and he waters it and he cares for it and he nurtures it and then comes growth from there. So abiding is critical. We will not abide in Christ if we cannot abide in his love. It's impossible to abide in Christ if we don't abide in the love of God. First, the love of God knowing God, knowing the uh, joy of his salvation, abiding in that. No, I don't have to see because today there's two kinds of people in church. There's one who just hears it and yeah, I, amen. But it's not here. It's not flourishing. It's not growing in their heart. It's not green. And they're angry and they are not happy. They're not full of joy. They'll come. Yeah, they might give you a few bucks in the offering. They might talk a little bit during the Bible study, but there's nothing truly there. Then there's another one who just says, I'm just so overwhelmed with joy, sometimes to the point of tears, that this God, who I'm not even worthy of being, would come and reside inside of this heart. He would change a wretched woman or a man like me. That's the one that I desire. Abiding is critical. That's why we abide. Now, I love him. Yes, I adore him. I mean, I was literally told a few weeks ago, I mean, uh, uh, a complaint about, I, 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 I love you, I love you, I love you, God. Well, my response is, I can't tell God enough how much I love him. Can you tell your husband or your wife how much you love them? Can you say it too much? No. What, right, right, wives? They can't say it enough. And we can't hear it enough. Right, husbands? No. You think God could ever hear it enough? You think that, that we could ever tell God enough? No, we don't tell God enough how much we love Him. Just as God the Father chose Jesus, God the Son chose His beloved that we bear much fruit. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, Jesus, having his little dispute with the Pharisees, said, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Again, remember, it's not known by its church going, or by its giving, or by these other things, but it's known by its fruit. Not by its preaching, per se, by the service of preaching, yes, by the type of message, but it's known by the fruit. We made a distinguishment that the fruit is not these things, activities we do, 
but it's the heart what comes from the heart, the things that glorify God. So we see there in Matthew chapter 12 that we have the choice to either make or fashion this tree good. We can make it good. How? By laying our life aside, our psyche, our emotions, the things that we desire, and by abiding in Christ. I've said it before, I don't feel like praying right now. Well, but I know that it's good for me, so I'm going to pray. I've actually said it before, that the times that I really don't want to pray is when I go into prayer, and those have been my best times in prayer. I mean, it's that time where you go in that prayer place, and yeah, it's like I made connection. I, I got a hold of heaven. I got a hold of the attention of the living God, and there is a connection there. If you've never experienced that prayer, then my encouragement is seek it out. And as we're closing, Numbers chapter 17. Numbers chapter 17, I think we see a picture. What was happening is Moses and Aaron and the people were mad. They were complaining and they were, in a sense, saying, what, you think you're all holy? You think you're the only one that God picked? You know, we're just as holy. And they were complaining about it. This was Korah and company. And so Moses fell on his face and went before God. Remember, these are brethren. These, these, these are friends. Moses could have said, will forget you. Now, of course, he did rebuke him. He did have something to say to him. But he interceded on, on their behalf and said, God, you can't charge it on everybody just because of the sin of one man. But in number 17, God uh, responds to Moses and asks him to separate the 12 tribes and to bring a staff from each one. This staff was their authority. Like, this is, this, this is what it's about. Everyone bring the staff. And verse 3 says, It shall be that the rod of the man whom I choose, okay, remember that, the man who I choose will blossom. Thus I will rid myself of the complaints of the children of Israel which they make against you. And you go down to verse 8. After Moses placed all the rods there, it says, Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron, the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds, had produced blossoms and yielded ripe almonds. That's fruit. But how did that rod produce fruit if it was a dead stick? Because it's God who brings the increase. It's God who causes it to bud, and that's the demonstration there. Without God, nothing can happen. Now, this is a picture of Christ because Christ is that rod that's going to shoot forth. He is the stem of Jesse, but imagine that, a branch laying on our yard, disconnected from the tree. And then you wake up tomorrow, what, it's got leaves? And then you wake up Wednesday, it's like, what, it's got a peach on it? Of course, we don't see that, but we're supposed to see it in our lives. Because people see us lying dead in our sins and trespasses, and yeah, but then they come one day and say, what? They got life now? And then they come a few months or years later and say, what? They're bearing fruit? That's authentic right there. And again, that's what causes them to desire this as well. Now, this rod, this is what they put in the Ark of the Tabernacle. 
the Ten Commandments, the manna, the rod. And it dwelt in there, and that dwelt in what was called the what? Holy of Holies. No man could go in there except for the high priest. Now, Jesus Christ is our high priest, but Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you, that you bear much fruit. We made, we made uh, light of that, which said we can't just abide in Christ, but Christ has to abide in us. There's a lot of people abiding in Christ, but Christ is not abiding in them. The Pharisees were abiding in God, but, but Christ was not abiding in them. Therefore, they were discredited. Well, today, there is no Ark of the Testimony. Ark of the Tabernacle. There is no more Holy of Holies per se. That was done away with, but that Holy of Holies is right here in a thing called our heart, in our soul. And in there, now, we are that budding rod that bears this fruit, that has this life that comes forth. God demonstrated His power in the sight of weak men by this miracle. He chose, then He brought life, then He yielded fruit. All of this uh, because of uh, rebellious men complaining that were coming against Moses, yet Moses and Aaron, they prayed. Instead of seeking destruction the same way that a real friend would. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to go before God rather than slandering them and putting them out there like that. And one last scripture, Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21 course just to paraphrase it and make it short jesus is talking about this fig tree this fig tree that wasn't bearing any fruit it wasn't giving any figs you read that in verses 18 to 21 and he got upset because that fig tree wasn't bearing fruit so what did he do he cursed the tree said let no more fruit grow on you and the next day uh, the tree was withering well that fig tree speaks of the nation of israel they weren't bearing any fruit for God. They were being barren. So God pretty much said, okay, let no more fruit come from you. This was a sample that I'm fixing to depart and I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And then in verse 33, he gives this parable about the wicked vine dressers. And he talks about the vine. He talks about the field. He talks about sending the vine dressers and his his servants. Now, this is just talking about when the prophets came and they treated them spitefully. They killed them. Then he said, I'm going to send the main one. That's Jesus Christ. They killed him as well. But he goes on to verse 44 and says, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will be it will grind him into powder. How many of us have fallen on that stone this morning? Because when we fall on that stone that's Jesus Christ, when we lay down our life upon Him, we become broken and we come to salvation. But on whoever that stone falls upon, it's going to be ground into powder. It's going to destroy us and consume us. That's the warning for the person who's not in Christ. Now us, we're in Christ, but we're called to engage in this choice to abide in Him. Don't abide in our feelings. That's what strays us away. I don't feel like this, that, or the other. It just doesn't, no, it doesn't matter. You know that it's good for you. That's what God desires. That's the love of God. 
Okay? We can't fool people no more. None of us are ignorant in this room. You can't fool me. You can't tell me you love God, but you don't abide in Christ. You just can't do it. Most definitely, we can't fool God. I mean, we have to just come to full terms and senses with this. Oh, I hear a lot of noise. I hear a lot of talking. I hear a lot of loud praying. But your life is not bearing any fruit. If it's not bearing any fruit, it's not connected to the vine of Jesus Christ. And this fruit, again, it's not church attendance. It's the right things that you should do. The things that please God, that demonstrate His character. There was... There, there was, there's a man that they called him and asked him about a certain preacher and things that they were talking about on TV. And immediately, because he didn't confer with one of those preachers, resorted to just being proud and said, I don't agree with him, so I'm discounting it. And a little bit afterwards, the Spirit of God convicted this individual. Is that the character of Christ? Or should we listen? And should we put things to test? And this man was convicted. And he went back and he re-listened to what it was that they asked him to listen to. Only to find out that God ministered to him through that and a lot of it that was spoken was truth. Now, he did what any humble man would do is he picked up the phone and called this individual and said, Hey, I owe you an apology. I'm sorry. I reacted with a critical heart rather than reacting with a heart out of love. And there was a restoration. Now, that action that that individual did, that's bearing fruit. That's doing the right thing without anybody telling you to do it, but the Spirit of God inside knocking on your heart, knocking on that door and saying, go and make, make it right what you made wrong. That's when you know that the Spirit resides inside. He leads me. He guides me. He causes me to lay down in green pastures. He brings me beside still waters. And then that is a joy that's just unspeakable. And when that's presented before us, yeah, I'd rather... I'd rather go be with God than to do other things. It's just more pleasing. It's more pleasurable. This is the fruit that God is talking about. But let's make no mistake about it. We have the choice to abide or not to abide because the Israelites did. They, they were broken off. We were grafted in. Let's not become haughty. Let's not become sluggish. Let's not become lukewarm or lethargic lest we receive the same treatment because of disobedience and unfaithfulness. Let's pray. God, if there's one thing that we desire to know more of this morning, it is your love, God. Not in the way that the world tells us or talks to us or demonstrates this love, but in your perfect ways, God, to demonstrate that. Father, there's not a single one of us in this room who doesn't fall short in this area. We all do. But it shows us, Lord, that there's a desperate need for you to abide in you, God, so that we can be a thriving, so that we can be exceedingly glad and joyful, knowing that we are connected to the vine. There is life within, God. I know that sometimes we go through 
spiritual heart freezes. Sometimes the growth is stunted or set back. But God, you always bring restoration. God, I would say that it's none of our desire, not a single one of us in this room, to become withered and dried up. To become gathered among men and thrown into the fire. God, we don't want to be influenced toward these ungodly ways of the world. God, teach us how to abide in you and how to demonstrate that with our friends. God, we know that you, Lord, you call us friends. You called Abraham your friend. And as a matter of fact, when you come back again, they're going to ask you about the wounds on your hands and on your side. And you're going to say, these are the wounds that I received in the house of my friends. God, may that not be us, God. May we not add to that affliction. Woe to those who put those marks on you, God. Woe to those who you speak of that, say, that you say, these are what I received in the house of my friends. Here they thought they loved you, God. Here they thought they were following you and being obedient, but yet they were smiting you, God. They were uh, ridiculing you. They were making less of you. May that never be us, God. Father, we are utmostly dependent upon you, God, to fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit, that our power of choice would be to abide in you, to glorify you, that we would bring much fruit, Lord, despite our circumstances, despite our emotions, that we could bear fruit, Lord. God, let this be our conversation, not this this morning, uh, our prayer as well, not just this morning, but in a minute when we go have lunch, tomorrow, in the morning, before we go to work, during the daytime. God, lead us. Lead us in your peace besides still waters. So in that stillness, God, we can meditate of you and only you. Amen.